he would watch the film every day and then we would text about it. And, you know, I think that's where our relationship really took off, you know, and it really helped me just because, you know, we would talk about things from a defensive standpoint, you know, how defenses were going to try to stop us, what they were looking at, you know, what he thought defenses were keen on. Like that year before we played the Saints, I remember sitting with him, you know, Monday, you know, we probably spent 30 minutes together just watching the tape of their defense. He gave me his thoughts on their defensive coordinator, his favorite calls, what he liked to do. Um, you know, so I had a great relationship with Jim, and I learned a lot about defensive football. Welcome to our series looking back at the Vikings Miracle 2017 season. Over the next five episodes, we'll be talking to reporters who covered the best Vikings season of the decade and talking about the events that led up to the Minneapolis Miracle and what it meant for the future of the Vikings franchise. In our first episode, we start with the offseason and training camp, the prelude to a most improbable season. And joining us to do so, Star Tribune Vikings beat reporter Andrew Kramer. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Now, I think where we need to start, Andrew, to get to the 2017 season is at the end of the 2016 season. To give us the full understanding of what training camp was like and what what it was like, the pressure going into week one of the 17 season, we have to start with the final week of the 2016 season and even going back to the, the previous couple of weeks where they lost to Indianapolis and then in Green Bay, the cornerbacks decided to do their own thing to uh, Mike Zimmer's chagrin and in week 17 they're playing a meaningless game against the Chicago Bears in which protesters are hanging a giant banner from a truss and Matt Barkley is catching a touchdown that would ultimately become the Philly special Uh, but Andrew at the end of the 2016 season Mike Zimmer held a press conference in which he defended his handling of players. And I I think we've come to see this group as one that was very, very close over the previous couple of years. And and in 2017, they became the most tight-knit locker room that I've ever been around. But at the end of 2016, there was a lot of trepidation around Mike Zimmer. And I think we were looking at him not so much exactly on the hot seat, but somebody who absolutely needed to get a hold of how he handled the players and the locker room and have a good 2017 season or his job was going to be in jeopardy. Yeah. And to further set that up, it, it all started with that five and zero start. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you win the division in the NFC North and green Bay the year before you start off five and Oh, you're, you're world beaters at that point. The defense is looking like it's going to be number one as it was in 2017, but it wasn't quite there that previous year. Um, and not only did Zimmer call his team soft in October, or call his offensive line soft that year, which really rubbed people the wrong way in the locker room, uh, then you had the way the season ended, as you said, um, with Adrian Peterson and him saying, well, I'll come back if we're in playoff contention. And then the way he came back was so unspectacular. That also rubbed people the wrong way and the way that the kind of coach seemed to have no control over what, what the player chose to do. Um, so it was just it was such a fascinating end and then you brought up i had to laugh you brought up the 
protesters dangling from the roof in that <laughs> meaningless game, which is by far the most spectacular way for, to end that season. Because that December, from the Colts game to the Packers game, to the way that the whole debacle was, uh, you know, at, at week 17 at U.S. Bank Stadium with people literally dangling from the roof. And they had to clear, I remember they had to clear the seats out from underneath the, where the protesters could have fallen. Um, and I remember they didn't show it on TV at all that the protesters were there. They just basically, so nobody really knew that they were there. You could only tell if you looked to a certain section of the stadium and saw that there was like 40 seats totally empty. And then if you looked above it, it was just people dangling from the roof. And it was the perfect ending because it was so bizarre and so weird and unexpected. I mean, I've certainly never seen anything like people dangling from a truss in a stadium with a giant banner, that's for sure. And yet it felt apropos of the 2016 season. It did, and that actually ended up getting the security team fired from the stadium, if I remember correctly. Right, yes, yes, because the Super Bowl was to be held uh, there the following year, of course, which will become a bigger part of this podcast series as we go along, for sure. So that gives you kind of a lay of the land for how strange the 2016 season ended, but also with Mike Zimmer, I'm not sure that the trust level was extremely high that he would be able to get them back on track at the following season because as you mentioned there were times where players felt manipulated by Zimmer or left out uh, kind of to dry from him like you mentioned with uh, saying the offensive line was soft after they lost their first game of the year and no doubt the offensive line had struggled about as much as any line in the NFL but still you were 5-0 and and then you lost the offensive lineman at that point and later on there were comments about Sharif Floyd that upset people in the locker room there were comments about Anthony Barr saying that he had a tendency to coast which did not strike anyone uh, very well in the locker room and then they felt even at times that they had been figured out by other teams and out schemed on defense by other teams as the defense no longer seemed like it was the monster that it was to begin the season and all of this points to Mike Zimmer going into this offseason with a need to figure out how to get them back to where they were in 2015 and at the beginning of the 2016 season. And some of that comes along with roster changes. So we need to talk about that before we get into training camp is it was extremely clear, Andrew, that they needed two new tackles. And that's never an easy task if you're a front office requiring two new tackles, but it had been a disaster in 2016. TJ Clemmings was getting smoked on a play-to-play basis. Jake Long came back very briefly. Uh, At some points, they had to move Jeremiah Searles out to tackle, and he was probably the best that they had out there. And and even he, of course, is not a full-time tackle. So they knew they had to replace them and spend a lot of money in free agency. So they go out and get Mike Remmers and Riley Reef. We also see Adrian Peterson, his opportunity, Option is not picked up, so he becomes a free agent. They bring in Latavius Murray, and that felt right there like an end of an era with Adrian Peterson, even though we all knew that he wasn't going to come back and his option wasn't going to be picked up. But that, in a way, offered some uh, uh, some freshness, I thought, to the organization of this is no longer Adrian Peterson's team. This is now Mike Zimmer's to take it one way or the other. 
Well, and frankly, the way that Sam Bradford had played in 2016, too, uh, there was just kind of that signing, uh, signaling, of uh, changing the guard is what I'm trying to say, of of kind of a new guy stepping in, passing league, quarterback. They didn't have a running game in 2016, even though it was Peterson's last year. Uh, Bradford was throwing all those passes. So Peterson kind of uh, leaving in 2017, I think you're right. What I remember it being was more of an exhale. I remember people around the franchise kind of just breathing a sigh of relief when he left. I remember teammates doing the same thing because it was like this guy had hung around those last three years were so up and down between um, obviously what happened in 2014 uh, with the incident with his child and the commissioner's exemplist. And then, of course, his rushing uh, title at 2015 um, to be the oldest guy to ever do that or one of the oldest guys to ever do that. Um, and then the way, obviously, in 2016, injuries, ineffectiveness, um, just strife in the locker room. Um, so it, for him to leave there, I think it was just kind of like, yes, finally, you know, he can move on. And then Dalvin Cook happens to fall in their lap in the second round uh, just a few months later. Right. And also, uh, usually spending a, a good chunk of cash on a running back when you're already uh, in a position to have to spend a lot of money is not a great idea. But the guy that they brought in for a very reasonable contract, Latavius Murray, ultimately becomes one of their best signings. And I would say also that Reef and Remmers were both hits for that year, long term. Reef has been an average left tackle for them, and Mike Remmers they had to move on from eventually after trying to move him to guard, and that happens in the 2017 season toward the end of the year, which I still maintain was a mistake, but again, for another podcast. But for what they did, it is extremely hard to fill those types of positions in free agency, but it solidified the offensive line so they could at least be reasonably decent. And I, I think if you're going to have a great season like they did and go 13 and three, you have to have some signing and some draft luck usually. And as you mentioned with Delvin cook, you end up getting a great running back in the draft. And then with those two signings, they both ended up being very, very good for the Vikings, even though at first, Andrew, as you remind me in training camp, uh, it did not look like it was going to be good for Riley reef. No, no, he ended up missing. Yeah, I remember he ended up missing that entire August, I believe, with a back injury, and everyone kind of went, well, here we go again. Um, they just replaced Matt Khalil, who had never been able to stay on the field with his own injury problems. Um, you had brought up luck, and that made me think of, because that was the point I wanted to get to as well with this, before that kind of came together, that the magical season that they had in 2017, they had so much in terms of kind of things fall in place for them after everything went wrong the year before, whether it was Case Keenum, Case Keenum, whom we'll get to, um, but Riley Reef, the fact that they got him, he, I believe he was either the third or fourth option in free agency. They wanted to re-sign Matt Khalil, couldn't do it. He decided to go to Carolina. They wanted to sign Russell Okun. He decided he'd rather sign with the Chargers and move to L.A. with him and his family, and then they signed Riley Reef. And so for Reef to be as serviceable as he's been, and especially in that 2017 year, he was very serviceable for them. Um, that that they didn't even want to do that for four or five six months prior they were trying to get a couple other guys and if it was Matt Khalil could you imagine where they'd be now no I th that's a great point because as we go through this there's a lot of what ifs that pop up including one involving Case Keenum uh, but uh, you know there's the, all these sort of hey if this had happened then you probably don't have it fall into place and I think if they don't get the serviceable to solid to maybe even above average play that year from Riley Reef, 
uh, they might not end up with a 13-3 and record. They might not end up having as good of an offensive performance as they did in the playoffs uh, against the New Orleans Saints, at least to start that game where they got the early lead. And uh, you wonder, I mean, how many times does Case Keenum get sacked if Matt Khalil is over there? Does Matt Khalil even last the full season? Do you end up with Rashad Hill ending up uh, starting for half the year? Because you look at the way that Matt Khalil played in Carolina, it was nothing short of a mess in Carolina, no. which is which is what yeah. we saw and what we had expected. And it was surprising even when we had heard that they were trying to bring back Matt Khalil. It, it felt very much like not admitting a mistake in the draft or even to pick up his fifth year option uh, that it was a mistake. And so then him, you know, hitting free agency and becoming a free agent and leaving ends up being a stroke of luck. Maybe Russell Kung would have been okay, but he also had some pretty significant injuries, whereas Riley Reef stayed largely healthy for that season. And then Mike Remmers had a good season as their right tackle and seemed to fit well with what Pat Shermer wanted to do, and he would never perform that well again, and they move him inside and draft someone else and try Rashad Hill there ultimately, but for that season, uh, Mike Remmers was very good. So their moves end up being hits there, but the biggest hit was... When Teddy Bridgewater gets hurt, Sean Hill has to start the first game of the season. And of course they trade for Sam Bradford because there was no way in hell that Sean Hill was going to be able to play the entire season. He was, I think, you know, basically um, had to miss practice after his first start because his arm was tired or something, right? The guy was 38 yeah. years old. Yep. And uh, so they go into the offseason with part of their goal is to bring in a veteran backup quarterback. Case Keenum had been benched in Los Angeles for Jared Goff, and he had been in Houston where he'd had you know, a couple moments that people thought, wow, maybe he could be the Houston Texans' next quarterback, and then ultimately it fell apart. So he comes into training camp to compete with Taylor Heineke, and Andrew, my recollection of this is that it did not start off very well for Case Keenum. No, my my first thought, I remember seeing him in camp, and I remember thinking he looked overweight. Um, and then I'm not some kind of like a BMI expert where I can just, you know, spot somebody and think. But you see athletes. We see a ton of very in-shape athletes. That's our job is to just stand around and watch them be athletes. And so when we're doing that, I look over and go, that doesn't look like an athlete. And it was Case Keenum. And now Case is already kind of shorter-statured, unassuming anyway. But when you saw him at first, and in that May and June, I just thought, wow, it looks like Taylor Heineke's got a legitimate shot to be the backup. Um, and it didn't go that well. I remember in, in uh, OTAs, in terms of just the, the physical um, completions, I don't know about the mental stuff because we don't get totally in there. I'm sure that Case Keenum was a little farther along than Taylor when it came to that. But when we saw the interceptions, the deflections, and some of the stuff early on in spring practices and even early on in training camp with Case, you started to think, ooh, um, they better hope Sam Bradford stays healthy. Right. No, I, I remember going into the first preseason game thinking this is a legitimate competition. Now, Case Keenum was set to be the first quarterback after Sam Bradford, so we knew that he was ahead because he was the veteran that they had signed. But the door was absolutely open, and I used door on purpose, open for uh, <laughs> for Taylor Heineke. And uh, well, think about this, too. In my mind, it was going this way, Andrew. They kept Taylor Heineke around after he had done about the dumbest thing you could possibly do 
breaking your foot on a door and missing a bunch of time setting yourself back, and yet they liked him enough because he was athletic, he did have a good arm, and put up all these crazy statistics at Old Dominion, so it seemed like they were into Taylor Heineke, and his previous year's training camp, I believe, and, and preseason had been decent, and so you're thinking, well, maybe this ends up being their guy, and they'll just cut Case Keenum and let him go sign somewhere else, and then the first preseason game, Case Keenum just goes off against the Buffalo Bills, and it was over right there. He rolls out to his right. He finds Stacy Coley sliding for a touchdown in the end zone, and then we knew, okay, I guess Case Keenum is a little bit of a gamer, and we would find out much later how much of a gamer he could be. That was just it, and it was. It was those preseason games because I, I remember thinking that Taylor didn't even get much of a chance once we got to those preseason games, which is about after two and a half weeks of training camp already. Um, Case had kind of started to separate himself there. However, at no point did I think, you know, they're set if Sam Bradford goes. You know, you're never yes, thinking like agreed. when you're watching this guy that he's going to lead you to 13 wins in an NFC Championship game appearance. There was just no sign of that. Even though he could play well, we see Kyle Sloter play well in exhibitions, and fans might think that that's all that matters. And clearly it's not because he's bounced around from team to team and unable to latch on anywhere. You need to be able to at least show competency in an offense. And Case Keenum clearly did that behind the scenes. But when we saw that in the preseason, there was still none of us saying, yeah, no, they'll be fine if Sam Bradford goes down. No, they'll be fine. Right, that's exactly the way that I would put it, is nobody thought that this season was going to go well if Sam Bradford got hurt again, which is why, for this episode's purposes, that's the only thing that's notable about training camp in Case Keenum is, oh, okay, he won the job once he got into the preseason games and showed that he could ball a little bit, but nobody had any idea what was coming, and we were, at that point, talking much more about two different storylines here. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater was on his way back. And in this training camp, he talked for the first time since he had actually injured his knee. He would not talk to reporters or do any fluff stories for your NFL network or anything else like that the entire year after he got hurt until that training camp. And I distinctly remember that press conference, Andrew, being kind of shocked still, even though we knew the story of him describing being in an ambulance with their trainer, Eric Sugarman, and having a conversation with Sugarman about potentially losing his leg. And I, I think that you even get a little bit of goosebumps still talking about it because of how significant that injury was. But to hear him say it, we already had a good sense for it, but to hear him say it was really like, wow, I can't believe you're here and working out on the side for an NFL team after that happened not that long ago. Yeah, and, and I remember, too, just kind of obviously there was the gravity of everything Teddy was saying, and you could tell it was it obviously affected him. But even then, it seemed to me that he was saying it was some kind of like composure, you know, the, the yes, way that he normally yeah, is, just yeah. kind of. He almost said a matter of factly of like, yeah, and they said I could have lost my leg or something, you know, as if it just said like, you know, yeah, I forgot my hat at work. You know, it's just, it was just <laughs> right. kind of a matter of fact thing for him. Um, and we're all standing there going like, wow, you know, because, yeah, it hit us much differently in terms of media, spectators, fans, whoever you want it to be, because you can hear these stories from Mike Zimmer, um, from Eric Sugarman, from whomever. But, um, yeah, when Teddy started talking about it, it made you think, wow. And then actually I remember Zimmer at some point that off season 
was asked um, if he ever thought Teddy would play again. And he said, honestly, I don't know. And so Mm -hmm. at that point, they still obviously a year later, which is still very early in the process, had no idea whether this kid was ever going to make it onto a field, let alone sign a $60 million contract like he just did. And of course, uh, later on in the season, we'll get one of the great moments of the year with Teddy finally getting back onto the field. At that point, when he did that press conference, did you feel like we would see him where we see him now signing a big contract with the Carolina Panthers. Did you think that we would see him back on the field that season or even active? Because I'll tell you the truth. I didn't. I thought, well, he's still got to be on the roster and they declined his fifth year option as I think you had to as the Vikings. We were still having that conversation or starting to have the conversation about tolling his contract potentially and things like that. But seeing him working out on the side Yeah, I mean, he's doing some of the drills, warming up and things like that, and he's moving. But I still was very, very skeptical that we would ever see him start an NFL game or even come into a game or even be active for a game again as he eventually became against Washington in the 2017 season. Yeah, I didn't think so either, certainly. Um, Not not only because of the the type of the injury and, and all the things that people have said, like, look, nobody's ever come back from this kind of an injury, especially at that position where in the, in the style of the injury, everybody remembers hearing non-contact injury mm-hmm. in practice. And everybody, everybody remembers the reaction of well, how, how did that happen? Like, and so when you're already coming off that basis, you go, well, if that can happen to a healthy, you know, healthy ish knee that Teddy had, what's going to happen when it's, you know, put back together? Is it going to just happen all over again? And so I don't think anybody had confidence that, no, he's going to put, we didn't know this at the time, but now that we know it's upward of five torn ligaments, the dislocation of the knee, all those things, nobody knew that that was going to be able to come together the way it did. And let's remember that Teddy's game was never predicated on being this perfect pocket passer, this kind of strong-armed, accurate. Like, he was starting to put together some of the anticipatory stuff in his game, and he was never known as, like, a super mobile guy. But the last vision I have of Teddy being really, really good was obviously that 2016 preseason game where he's juking Chargers uh, Mm -hmm. safeties before throwing a 25-yard touchdown to Kyle Rudolph. Um, that was his game where if he was going to kind of keep developing his athleticism was and his ability to kind of see and move on the field was going to be a huge part of it. And when that was taken away, I thought, I thought, I hope this kid just can kind of continue a life that he's happy with, not only a football life. Right. The, uh, the pocket presence was part of it, you know, climbing up in the pocket or taking a few steps here or there, or having the ability on third and 10 when they're playing man coverage and everybody's down the field to run for 11 yards. He, he could do that in the same way that Case Keenum showed us later on in the season with his run against Chicago where he gets a first down on third down, like enough mobility to take off, but moving a lot of short and quick movements that you would think having a hampered knee would be majorly problematic. And of course we know long-term that he's been able to make himself an NFL starter again. And it is truly incredible at that time. I did not have any expectation of that for sure. So he was more in terms of the quarterback conversation, a little bit out of sight, out of 
mind aside from that press conference. And I believe that was the only time that he had talked until he was active again against Washington. And so the focus was entirely on Sam Bradford and whether Sam Bradford could be this team's long-term quarterback. We were looking for hints of improvement, hints of growth with the Pat Shermer system. The 2016 season had been so volatile for Sam Bradford. What we were told repeatedly is, oh, now he has his offensive coordinator. He has a full training camp, and this year's going to be different for Sam Bradford. And Andrew, throughout training camp, I was I was buying that. I had no expectation of what had ultimately happened in week one, where he goes completely nuts, and that'll be our next episode on the podcast series. But <laughs> But we saw things from Sam Bradford in that training camp that told us this guy was a number one overall draft pick and made throws during that training camp, especially one to Stefan Diggs in the night practice that I will never forget. It was a bomb 40, 50 yards down the field on the money. And he started building this chemistry with Diggs and Thielen and Jerry Wright and Kyle Rudolph uh, that looked like it could be a pretty explosive offense. Yes, I have. Uh, what goes back with Sam to me is, is his arm. Um, I think of the throws you, you brought up the deep one to Diggs. Um, I have never seen an arm uh, that talented. Um, and it's obvious that he went, you know, first overall for that reason. Um, but it's guys like Matt Stafford. It's guys like Sam Bradford. Those type of arm talents that, that you know, it's Kirk Cousins on steroids kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Where, like, if you've got that strength to just rifle a pass in there 35 yards down the field or throw that 55-yard go route. Um, I, I've i never stood on a, on a practice field like we did in uh, Mankato that year in seeing a guy sling around like that because my history of Vikings quarterback started only in 2013 so it was pretty dismal pretty bad <laughs> yes, yes. yeah it, it was Christian Ponder it was Matt Castle it was Teddy Bridgewater in terms of our arm talents it was very bad so when Sam Bradford came in you're like oh my god I remember spending the entire offseason um, just every radio appearance I could every time I had a chance to share my opinion on it I was saying the Vikings need to lock this guy up don't look into the fact that he just through for like five yards of pass in 2016 they didn't have a running game he's talented this is the best quarterback they've had in a long time you guys got to sign this guy up and they never did and I kept asking Sam throughout that offseason have they approached you about contract extensions I remember going to the playground build that spring I remember approaching him in training camp multiple times about it and every he would get kind of mad toward the end of the year because at the time he's like no I keep telling you no they're not talking to me about it and they never once approached him about it and it turns out it was probably because of his medicals being so poor uh, as we were to find out in 2017 yes because otherwise unless they had believed that they would get teddy bridgewater back but declining his fifth year option hinted toward them not believing they would ever get teddy bridgewater back or they had the foresight enough to see far down the road and know that someone like Kirk Cousins could become a free agent, but I never heard that from anyone, that they had looked that far into the future. It was very much Sam Bradford, go prove it, and you can earn yourself a lot of money if you have a great 2017 season. And I don't doubt, considering the relationships that Bradford had built with the people on offense, I saw even recently Stefan Diggs defending Sam Bradford on Twitter. Uh, Other teammates that I've talked to will stand up for him and say, this guy was a a great teammate and we loved playing with him. 
and, and felt like that we let him down on the offensive line in 2016, and otherwise they would have made the playoffs and been even better. And I, I tend to agree with that. That was one of the worst offensive lines that I've ever seen. And uh, I don't doubt they would have made the playoffs had TJ Clemmings not been your starting left tackle for a lot of that. Um, so th- there was a belief in Sam Bradford, and it was bolstered by that training camp, and not only belief from the aspect of the other players on the field with him, but also from Mike Zimmer and the relationship with Mike Zimmer started to build and started to grow. And those two became close in a way that I didn't expect at that point, because Zimmer had been so close with Teddy Bridgewater. And from what we've seen since where there's been distance between Mike Zimmer and his quarterback, Uh, But with Sam Bradford, those two seem to be very much on the same page. And it culminated with one day Bradford scoring a touchdown in a drill and jumping on Mike Zimmer and knocking down Zimmer. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that. Um, And when you were talking about the relationship, it it actually made me think of Zimmer's um, eye surgeries, which started in 2016, the year Mm -hmm. before. Um, I don't think I think it's fair to sum up the relationship maybe through that connection in the sense that Bradford's playing through these knee injuries his entire career. He, the one thing that when you say a positive about Sam Bradford, people talk about his toughness. Like yes, the guy's injury prone, but he's going to stay in there. He's going to if he is available, if he's physically able to stand there, he will. And we saw that later in 2017 when he played so injured in that Chicago game, and he should not have been out there. But that kind of mentality. I, Zimmer just attaches to, just loves. I mean, just that kind of Harrison Smith, I don't care if I got a grade three ankle sprain, I'm going to play in a meaningless season finale game. Hmm. That that kind of thing. Um, and I think Bradford had it. And, and I and I think that kind of mentality where, like, Bradford wasn't a talkative guy, wasn't the guy who was going to, you know, he was just going to show you. He wasn't going to tell you anything. Um, and I think Zimmer really liked that about him. And, and I think their current situation with Kirk – um, Kirk's super tough, and I think Zimmer probably respects the heck out of him for that. But Kirk's going to tell you a lot of things, and, and Mike's not too happy when he does. <laughs> no, that that is for sure. That uh, Sam Bradford, you could never really get a good feel for what was going on in there uh, from his press conferences and things like that. And we had Bradford on the show, and I joked with him about the Bradford stare, where he sort of looks right <laughs> through you as he's giving an answer. He was a tougher guy to read, and it was even a tough situation until then to read of how the team was going to galvanize around him through training camp. You saw it and you saw the offense executing effectively. And uh, you and I have both covered many a training camp where you come out of camp saying, I don't think this offense is really on the same page yet. That was not one of those years that in this particular season, you felt like uh, Pat Shermer and Bradford and his teammates had gelled. And what I went on to learn later from doing a show with Alex Boone and having Bradford on the show and talking to other people about him is that he and Zimmer really connected on an IQ level that Sam Bradford was somebody who really loved the X's and O's of the game and, and loved to be in those meetings and things like that. You wouldn't have gotten that sense necessarily from him through press conferences. And this is why it can be hard sometimes from the outside perspective, especially if your only access to someone is press conferences, because it turned out that he really had an appreciation for that. And I will always think, Andrew, that had Sam Bradford stayed healthy through the 2017 season, he is their franchise quarterback. And I'm going to ask probably every one of our guests that comes on um, for this podcast series if you think that they end up in the Super Bowl if Sam Bradford is their quarterback the whole time. 
Wow. Uh, no, no, I don't. I think that I don't think it's the same result, but I think they still lose to Philadelphia in that game. Frankly, they might not even beat the Saints. I don't know if Sam makes the same throw at the end of the game because, like that Saints game, the, the fact that they ended up uh, almost losing against Sean Payton at U.S. Bank Stadium was no fault of Case Keenum or the offense. It was the fact that defense blew a 17-point lead. Mm-hmm. And Sam Sam still would have been in the same situation. Maybe he would have built a bigger lead with a higher-power offense with his arm. Um, maybe that's the case you could make. But, um, no, I, I think that, that defense was so abysmal in Philadelphia, so bad. I just think of Harrison Smith getting uh, torched. Guys that just normally don't get beat got beat that night. And I don't think anything would have changed if you had – maybe even if you had Tom Brady at quarterback. I just think that defense was that bad that night. No, you're right that the offense for Philadelphia um, completely dominates that game. The only thing that I wonder in both games about Sam versus Case is the thing that bothered Mike Zimmer throughout the season is that Case was kind of reckless with the football sometimes and got away with it, whereas Bradford in the Miracle game probably doesn't throw an interception in the game against uh, Philadelphia, he probably doesn't throw that pick six. And then even along the way, what I wonder about is with ex- as explosive as the offensive looked in training camp, if he wins some of the three games that they lost, they only lose three games, but those games were each winnable. And that that's where it would come to mind. Could they have been 15 and one? Could they have been 14 and two? Now, when you left training camp though, what did you have in your mind? And, and I want to get to some of the other notes that are, you know, funny about this uh, offseason because there's other things that are worth talking about here for sure. And we haven't gotten to Delvin Cook's emergence and things like that. So, But in your mind, what was your expectation for Sam Bradford for the 2017 season when we broke camp? Yeah, I was expecting him to have a very good year. And you had talked about the offense as a whole entering that year and kind of thinking um, we all felt kind of was on the same page. Well, I do remember writing a lot about still the offensive line that training camp because we had mentioned Riley Reef was not practicing all August due to a back injury. Uh, they still had a backup left tackle at that point. And the big questions were, is it a here we go again kind of thing? Like, I think we all felt good about Sam Bradford, the skill weapons, adding Dalvin Cook into the mix, um, just having that kind of youth and that regeneration, at least in the backfield after the Adrian Peterson years. Um, I do think that everything was going right around him, except everyone still had the hesitation about the O-line. We did not see Riley Reef take a snap in a game with his offensive line um, teammates of the Vikings until week one. Right. Um, and, th- and that's when we found out, like, oh, this guy still can play. He's not just a total cast off uh, from Detroit. Um, and so with Sam Bradford, the expectations were, hey, th- this guy can really sling it. But can they keep him upright? And um, it turns out to be a non-contact thing early in the season that undoes him. Yeah, and we still don't know exactly where that happened or what happened with Sam Bradford. But yeah, I left camp also with very high expectations for him. But you mentioned the offensive line, and this is a big storyline throughout training camp because every other week they had a different group of players in there. And, <clears throat> and they wanted to start doing the zone running thing, and we saw them... You know, switching Nick Easton and Pat Elfline in and out at center, and then all of a sudden Nick Easton is playing guard, which gave us a hint to the fact that they would later cut Alex Boone to have Nick Easton start at guard. And Easton and Elfline, eventually down the road, Elfline becomes a guard and struggles quite a bit. But 
that was pre-injury or post-injury pre-injury in this training camp he was emerging as a really nice looking player and eventually he does throughout the season and Nick Easton had the athleticism and kind of grittiness that they liked uh, so they could run the type of uh, running scheme that they had and that was an ever-evolving thing is where is everybody going to play along this offensive line and it eventually becomes Uh, Though Alex Boone is a friend of the station, it becomes the right move that they moved on from Alex Boone and had Nick Easton plugged in there. Even though, if I recall correctly, when they took the field for week one, that group had never played a game together, those five offensive line for that particular combination. No, not at all, because Riley hadn't played a single one um, the entire summer. Um, So he was the one missing. And aside, the other four might not have played together, too. I don't remember exactly how that all came together. But you're right. They kept mixing those guys. And it's actually, it's really, it's a good point. It's easy to forget uh, good Pat Elfline because he's been so bad since he came back and was unfortunately hit with both a bum shoulder in December of 2016. And then he broke his ankle like a month later. And those two things back to back, he's just, he's never been the same since then. But at the time it looked like, Hey, you've got a couple promising young guys. They just traded for Nick Easton from San Francisco, I think one or two years prior. Um, it looked like the two young up and coming potential center or guards that they were going to be able to use. Um, so that was the promising part, but we were still looking at that left tackle spot going like, Oh, yep. Maybe Jake Long's uh, phone number still on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jake Long, one of the one of the sad stories of 2016, where he had actually been playing pretty well and then gets injured and uh, never takes a, another step on an NFL field again. So that was the offensive line storyline and the receivers. We mentioned Thielen and Diggs, where Thielen started to emerge as, I think this guy's going to be more than just a one-hit wonder. Jarius Wright was doing Jarius Wright things, but... It was year two for Laquan Treadwell. And anytime you have a first year bust from a guy, year two training camp from a first round draft pick is all about, is this the year the guy takes the big step forward? And Andrew, we spent a lot of time talking with Laquan Treadwell throughout that training camp. And he revealed to us that he did not understand what a route tree was or how to run routes or how to win or how to get separation or any of those things that he had just beaten people in college with pure athleticism. And that was the first time I thought maybe they shouldn't have drafted you so high then, but, but also that I all, if you're in your year two and you're telling us that you don't know how to run routes and presumably Stefan Diggs has been working on this since he was a teenager or before uh, it was going to be a really tough time for him catching up, but the Vikings were so committed to him. And and this is one of the big questions of this entire season is what did he do during this training camp? Uh, He got hurt in this camp. He got in a fight with Antoine Exum and nothing to prove that he belonged on the field and yet ended up on the field quite a lot that season. Yeah, I want to back back it up a couple months, too, from that training camp, because I remember um, when they initially signed Michael Floyd, and I think it was May or June, um, I had heard um, things were just not going well for Laquan that spring. I had heard from a a buddy who um, uh, worked for the company that Laquan uh, leased his apartment through, and as as soon as Michael Floyd had uh, signed with the Vikings, Laquan had asked to get out of his lease. (laughs) <laughs> and was trying to, yeah, he basically thought his time was up in Minnesota at yeah. that point. At least uh, people around him were indicating that. Um, and then I remember interviewing him um, uh, in OTAs uh, just a few uh, weeks later, maybe a month later. 
And um, he had gone through a lot in his rookie year. You remember that injury at Ole Miss? Um, that was the big talking point yes. of like, well, maybe he just wasn't fully recovered, and maybe that's why he was slow and all these things. Um, and he uh, he had to wear some special orthotic insoles in his shoes as a rookie in 2016 to try and uh, ease him from that and try to continue to overcome some of the ankle issues he was having from that injury in college. Um, I talked to a trainer of his who had talked about some of the things he was doing to still overcome that in 2017. This was still an issue hmm. uh, a year after they drafted him. And he was so upset that I had, I had just started asking him some of these questions and had known enough about you know, specialists he was seeing who, who had seen T.O. and had gone through some of the other similar issues. Uh, he just walked out of the interview. And so his headspace was in a, seemed to be, in at least when he was at work, in a very bad place, or at least not in the right place. Um, and so I guess it wasn't such a shock that later on, you know, he in training camp anyway, he's talking about all these things that he just didn't understand. And, you know, when you talk to his teammates, people just say that this kid never really kind of had his head screwed on straight, wasn't focused on the right things, uh, didn't have the right attitude. Mike Zimmer uh, openly talked about him just kind of sulking his head and just kind of being – you know, not really the type of uh, person you want around. Um, and so, yeah, it was weird to see that, that in 2017 he ends up being uh, at least a part of this offense that was somewhat productive. And this was the training camp in which Laquan Treadwell late at night was running stadium steps and a local TV reporter was doing a report out there and pointed out Laquan Treadwell is behind me running stadium steps, putting in the extra uh, you know, 110%. And Mike Zimmer, then in a press conference, I believe at the next year's combine, made fun of Laquan Treadwell for doing that as as sort of a point to say he's not working on the right things still. And if he's ever going to be good, he's going to have to work on the right things. And he didn't. It never happened. Yet, he still found himself on the field a lot. And that's the baffling thing is I would not have predicted at that time in training camp that he was going to make his way on the field, that he was going to be the number three receiver. And he did over Michael Floyd, who in that training camp worked with the second team and annihilated guys who weren't going to make the team, just totally dominated them. And we walked out, okay, four game suspension. But when this guy comes back, he's going to be a deep threat for them. He's going to be a big deal for them. And that was after we had gone through all the nonsense of him living in Kyle Rudolph's basement, him drinking kombucha tea and claiming that that was the reason that he had, uh, that he had uh, violated his parole, which I mean, Sure you did, right? I mean, none of us have ever believed that. And Mike Zimmer said that if he found out Michael Floyd was lying to him, he was going to cut him. Like, guess what, Mike? He's lying to you because this doesn't make a bit of sense for why you would uh, fail your test. And it also gave us an idea of where Michael Floyd was at just in his life. And uh, I I haven't gotten any updates on how he's done or how he's doing now. But uh, I wondered at that point about Michael Floyd. How is he going to be after he's done with football and so forth? But in training camp, he showed a lot of talent and figured at that point to factor in way bigger than he eventually did. Yeah, that was the thing. And it was was the first round talent. It was the stuff you saw, you know, Minneapolis, if you watched them in high school. Um, Yeah, you just knew that this kid was was something special if they could ever put it together between the eyes. And it was kind of a similar, I don't want to say similar because I don't know these guys personally, but it seemed like a similar thing to Laquan where it's like, you got the talent. You just can't kind of be reliable, show up every day, do the right. same things every day, don't screw up. 
um, or at least put your focus in the right area, whereas Laquan wasn't. Um, yeah, it was. It was just. It was. It was. It continued the Vikings' wide receiver problems because I remember at that point, um, had they had a thousand yard wide receiver since Sidney Rice? Then did they have one? They did. Did they have one in 2016? Or I don't think Diggs reached a thousand yards that year because he was catching like four yard passes yeah. in the running game. He got to like 900 um, something. Either way, this was still at the point where the Vikings had so many wide receiver problems. And now you don't think about it. Now it's like, oh, they had one of the best tandems ever. You know, they've never had problems at wide receiver. It's like the whole decade from 2009 to about 2018, they were awful. Mm -hmm. Uh, 2017, I guess, they were awful at wide receiver. And you're still looking for a Michael Floyd or a Laquan Treadwell to make a difference. Um, And that's kind of where they were at in 2017. But in the backfield, they were in great shape. I wrote maybe two weeks into camp, Delvin Cook, this guy is going to change everything for the Vikings, uh, that he's going to be the all-around back that they've dreamed of having. I remember you know, going around talking to a bunch of teammates and to Kennedy Palomalo, their running back coach, and even just the way Kennedy Palomalo talked about him, this was a guy who had coached Reggie Bush at USC as the most talented running back he had been with, or one of them. And there's... A such thing as training camp hyperbole, you and I always have to sort of <laughs> sift through what's hyperbole and what's real. But with Delvin, we could see it. You could see the burst, the explosiveness, and you talked to him. And what I remember standing out right away was, okay, we heard all about this guy's character issues, and I'm sure there's truth to that, but this is an intelligent guy. This is somebody who really has a, a mind for football, and I think he's going to be special we end up seeing it eventually on the field right away, but I figured him to be a great player from pretty much the moment you saw it. I mean, there are guys that you don't like you described case Keenum where you said, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this guy's going to do anything. And then there are guys that you do. And Delvin cook was mind blowingly good right away. Yeah. Davon was one of those guys where when he stepped on the field, you're thinking, um, how did he fall into the second round? Because, um, we can be proclaim ourselves as draft Knicks or whatever, but you know when you spend so much time actually covering one team with the Vikings, you really don't get to watch these guys that much in college. Mm-hmm. And so you can see some highlights of packages and stuff and watch them after they draft the guy, but it's really when you first see him on that field that you get the, the first glimpse of like, whoa, okay, now I see why they like this guy so much. And with Dalvin, there was no question. There was I remember when I sat down with him in training camp that year before his rookie year, um, it, the, the, all the questions I'd had lined up, the top half of my sheet was all off the field stuff. And and that's kind of the literal translation of there were no questions about what he could do on the field. We, we all yes. knew like it was just whether or not like, Hey, are you going to stay out of trouble? Are you not going to get, you know, talking to the cops like you did at Tallahassee three different times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, those were the questions. And, and, you know, Rick Spielman saying, well, I trust Dalvin's going to keep his head straight. You know why? Cause he told me, you know, and then those, yeah. Those kind of things, um, those kind of backs and forth, that was what everyone wanted to know about Dalvin. And they were legitimate questions because they, you had just dealt with Adrian Peterson and all the off-field stuff that he had just brought. And so I think that was the thing that people were kind of holding their breath about. But everybody on the field was saying, man, this kid is going to be fun to watch. And it was just such a shame that, you know, you talk about what would happen if Bradford were healthy. What would happen if Dalvin were healthy mm-hmm. that entire 2017 yep. year, too? Yep. And uh, they made the right move by still drafting him, even though they had Latavius Murray, because Murray 
comes in, or, or I should say the other way around. They made the right move by signing Murray, even though they would eventually draft Delvin because Murray plays a big role in that. And in training camp, Murray was on the side. He was uh, barely getting in, I think, at the very end of training camp because of an ankle injury that he had suffered that we were told, no big deal, it's not a not a problem, he's going to be good to go. And a shocker, they didn't tell the truth about an injury, and he doesn't get into training camp until late. And by that point, Delvin Cook was far ahead of everyone else. Now, there's another notable moment uh, that's worth mentioning before we wrap up here, Andrew, for our first episode of this five-part series looking at the 2017 season that you brought up in a text message to me that I had entirely forgotten and now can't stop laughing about is <laughs> in the preseason. What I do every year is I do the like uh, men in black thing. Once the preseason is over, I wash my memory of anything in preseason. Like don't ever talk to me about it again. Uh, <laughs> but Blair Walsh making a 52 yard field goal in a preseason game against the Vikings and then pointing at the sideline as if to pimp the home run of a preseason field goal. And he would eventually go on to miss three field goals in a game and miss another one Atlanta to uh, at Atlanta or against Atlanta to cost them a playoff game, Seattle, when he was out there. I mean, that is one of those moments that you just uh, should never forget about. Yeah, when I was recapping high, you know, just headlines from the 2017 season, I had forgotten about that as well, and I had to stumble upon it on on the great Google and just just lost it because I'd forgotten all about it, and I couldn't couldn't fathom, you know, Blair Walsh. I remember being at that preseason game too. Uh, that was the one I traveled for that year um, for the Star Tribune, and I remember. Um, it just seeing him point to the film, like, did he do that? He didn't. Did he really do that? And I remember turning to the people in the press box and I'm going, yeah, I think he just did. And then we look up at the TV monitor and they replayed it like 400 times, of course, <laughs> yes. because it's a preseason game. Yes. What else are you going to keep replaying? Um, I just couldn't believe it. And the poor guys had no NFL career to speak of ever since. No, that was uh, the, the wrong time to do that. You might want to wait till you do it in the, in the regular season. <laughs> <laughs> And, and poor, poor Blair Walsh. I mean, I'll, I'll always feel some sympathy for him. You miss a field goal that big, you go down in infamy with your team's fans and so forth, and it's never fun. Uh, before we wrap, though, uh, Andrew, and I really appreciate all the time here. This has been a lot of fun looking back at training camp in that offseason. What was your prediction for the season? Every year we all do this. We all write down a number or tweet it out. So if we're right, we can go back and retweet ourselves what was your prediction for how many games the Vikings would win in the 2017 season and how far they would go? Oh, wow. I don't remember. Um, I honestly do not remember, but it would not have been rosy. I am, I'm typically the, um, uh, pessimistic one of, of the media, even, you know, even among media cynics and even somebody who works with Mark Craig, I'm known as the pessimist <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to uh, predicting last year, I thought it was like 10 and six and maybe they'll win the division, but, and it happened to, to kind of come close. But like with that year, I remember thinking still having major questions about the offensive line, still having questions about wide receiver. Cause you weren't, you, know, you weren't totally sure. We didn't know Adam Thielen was going to be this guy. Right. Um, yep. we, we didn't, we didn't know. We knew Diggs was talented, but we didn't know he'd totally be this either. So um, at that point, I probably would have said missed the playoffs because Riley Reef had not, again, had not played a game. Um, it was just a rookie and Dalvin cook. And you're just hoping that O-line would come together. And um, I thought I, I would have felt pretty good about my prediction after their two and two start. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that's right. And that will be our next episode with Dave Campbell of the Associated Press looking at the first five games of the season that were a roller coaster in themselves. So I appreciate you all listening to our first episode here, looking back at the Vikings Miracle 2017 season. Follow Andrew Kramer on Twitter at Andrew underscore Kramer and his work, of course, at the Star Tribune. And we will catch you on our next episode here on Score North.